welcome to episode 160 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So before we launch into some epic affirmations and denials on this episode, can I take a moment to just express a little gratitude? Are you down with that? Let's do it. So there are a number of brothers and sisters who are part of the Reformed Brotherhood who give a little bit each month toward this podcast. And I'm really super grateful for those who invest in that way. And another one was added this week. So brother Mike, I just want to say thank you for giving to the podcast. Of course, your first responsibility, all of our first responsibilities as Christians is to our churches, but there are so many that I know are giving to the churches and then giving above and beyond in a little ways toward us. And what I love about this is so many people give just these little gifts, you know, a couple bucks here or there, and that makes such a big difference to us. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. You know, there, there are other ways to give too. If, if you want to just send us money, we're happy to take your money and put it to good use. But if you want some sweet gear that also gives us a little bit of money, you can head over to confessionalware.com and all of your purchases, um, they mostly go to help our brother Raphael, who is so gracious to put together all of our merchandise for us. Uh, but we do get a little portion of that as well. So if you're looking for some sweet gear, maybe a midwinter, no specific reason, somewhere around the solstice present, uh, <laughs> check it out at Confessional Wear. And you can still get the super limited time edition Reform Brotherhood beer stein uh, by heading over to confessionalware.com still as well. They're really sweet. I'm not sure that we can really express the gravity of how cool this stein is because it is a straight up German style ceramic stein yeah. with our logo on it. It's unique. It's one of the kind. You you have people over, you bust this bad boy out, it changes everything. Yeah, I'm still probably going to at some point drink my morning coffee out of it because I usually <laughs> have two cups of coffee in the morning, so I might as well just put it all in one beer stein and drink it in the morning. This is legit. Bigger than a pint, right? Is that what we determined? Yeah, it's 22 ounces, so it's like a pint and a half. A little more, yeah, a little bit less than a pint charge. and a half. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing right there. So go to confessionalware.com. You can also give at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Reform Brotherhood. Or you can just go to our website, reformbrotherhood.com. And there are all kinds of fun links in the upper right-hand corner. One of those of which is Patreon to give. So I just want to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for being willing to give a little bit. I can't tell you how much that helps us cover all the incidental expenses that we have. It's one less thing actually that you and I have to worry about because we can just really enjoy the conversation and not have to worry about how we're going to cover some of the costs that come along yeah. with this. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. So without any further ado, let's get into some affirmations and denials. Would you mind kicking us off? Affirm something. Sure. So this has got a little bit of a backdoor story that we've got to get to, but Did I'm a backdoor story. Yeah. Like a backdoor story. Like you have to come in from, from the story and behind it. I don't know. So like not, not just backstory, but backdoor story. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> is, there, is there a difference? I don't I love I, this. I don't know if that's a saying or not, but it is now. So I love it. Tell me, tell me the backdoor story. I'm affirming Michael Tate, formerly the lead singer of DC talk. <laughs> currently the lead singer of Newsboys. Uh, and the reason I'm affirming uh, Michael Tate, 
I, I mean, I, I don't really know a lot about this guy's personal life, but when I met him at the airport the other day, he seemed pretty nice. So That's I, so hilarious. I know. So I, I'm sitting in the airport, right? I, I was traveling home to visit family in Minnesota, and I'm sitting in the airport. You know how you are in the airport. You're kind of people watching, and you're sort of like listening because you're always waiting for like announcement about your flights. So you always have like one ear open listening for whatever. And all of a sudden I hear this guy singing and I'm like, man, that voice sounds so familiar. And I look up and I was like, this guy looks so familiar. And I'm like, I think that's Michael Tate from DC talk. So I'm like getting on my phone, like looking up pictures of him. And I was like, oh, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to tell. That's great. So I'm watching, I'm looking at like the group of people who's sitting with, and I'm like, are any of them wearing like newsboy shirts or like, like even like sort of like a Christian t-shirt, something that would like indicate to me that my, my instinct is, is right. And finally I'm like, I just got to go ask. It's going to bug me. It's literally going to bug me for the rest of my life if I don't go ask. And so I walk over and I say, I'm sorry, this might be really awkward, but are you Michael Tate? And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, brother, I am. And so, I, you know, like, like, you know, we sometimes bash a little bit on like CCM, like Christian music. Sure. But like the fact is DC talk was hugely influential in my early Christian life. I actually remember the first time that I can consciously recall feeling conviction about sin was when I was listening to the song in the light by DC talk. So I just, wow. I just shared with That's him powerful. that, that DC talk was really influential um, and that Jesus freak was a really significant song in my life because, you know, I, I know like you were raised in a Christian family, but I, I was definitely not raised in a Christian family. So when I, when I became a born again, Christian, like people called me strange. Does that make me a stranger? It was like the real, like the reality of my life. Like life became very strange to those around me. So having like a song to rally around that, that I could like listen to and sort of almost like metabolize in sort of a framework to like understand my life through was really important. So it was funny because like, I, I don't get starstruck. Like I wasn't nervous. And like, I've, I've met a bunch of like famous theologians. I don't usually ask for like a picture with them, but he goes, he goes, come on, let's get a selfie. <laughs> so I probably would not have asked for a selfie, but he wanted to take a selfie. So, so it was good. So I met Michael Tate at the airport. Apparently the newsboys and all their crew fly Southwest so it was funny to just like watch them get up and stand in line like a bunch of chumps like the rest of us. Um, <laughs> so it was it was an interesting morning, but it was it kind of made my whole day because it was like it, it was kind of like I sat back and reflected on God's providence. Like of all the terminals like Chicago, oh, uh, Chicago Midway has what, like 15 terminals. Huge. Yeah, I, I was only at the terminal I was at because my flight actually got changed terminals based up besides what my ticket was in. Like he happened to be going through that terminal. I happened to be paying attention. He happened to be singing a song that I sort of recognized. So like all these little things that God lined up. Um, I don't know what he was. I don't know what God's purpose in this providentially was. Maybe it was to encourage me. Maybe it was to encourage him. Maybe it was to encourage his bandmates. I, I don't know. But all these things lined up, and it's just kind of marvelous to see how God's providence works out. Okay, I got a couple of questions about the backdoor story. All right, let's do this. What What was he singing? Do you remember? I don't really. I, I just kind of like heard him singing. And you know, like you hear like a person's conversation or whatever, but you don't register what they're actually talking about. Yeah. I heard him singing and I just recognized the voice. It was like, he's got a very distinct voice. And it's funny because I probably haven't heard 
a Newsboys or DC Talk song in like five years, like an actual like him singing probably five years. But he just has one of those voices that just like was locked into my head. That's incredible. I love this story. When you texted yeah. me, we're like, guess who I met at the airport that like you said to me, I think like, I'll give you a hundred bucks right now. Yeah. If you can guess <laughs> who it is. I was not even close in any of my guesses. Yeah. And then you just sent me the picture. And even I was like, is that Michael Tate? Yeah. Like of all people. Yeah. And I don't know why it, he was like immediately recognizable to me. I have no idea. But yeah, after you sent me that text and relayed some of the story, I went home like that night and listened to almost all of Supernatural, that the DC Talk yeah. album. And I was like, man, that album has aged well. It that has. is a good album. Uh, I went on my way home. I threw on uh, D- uh, Jesus Freak, which the song, the song has aged pretty well. Uh, I wasn't driving yet. I was waiting for my uh, for the plane to like taxi when I was listening to it. And I um, I was watching the video. The music video has not aged so well. (laughs) It's just like the three of them, like making weird faces in front of like strange images. And like, it's just not a it's a it's not a great video. You know, it's funny, though, because this is now the second member of DC Talk that I've met randomly out in public in a like what non-musical situation like wait wait who who is the other one uh i met uh uh was it kevin smith yeah it was kevin smith the other one not not toby mckeon kevin smith the, the more singer guy like toby mack was yeah. obviously like more of the rapper and then michael tate and kevin smith were more of the vocals and right. they were doing a signing at the local christian bookstore near my house uh, in minnesota I wasn't going to the signing. I didn't even know there was a signing. I would have gone to the signing if I knew about it. It was for Supernatural, actually. And I was uh, I was out in the parking lot. I was stopping to get Subway. And I randomly looked into, like, the cab of this van. And I was like, is that Kevin Smith? <laughs> and I, I, like, was kind of staring at him. And he, like, pulled me. Like, he waved me over to the van. He could tell I recognized him. So now I just need to run into Toby Mac at, like, the barbershop or something. And, and we'll be all set. Well, you seem, I would say, on the trend to have that happen, like providentially. Yeah. It seems to be lining up just right for you. You know, Newsboys has become sort of this uh, amalgamation of, of like former Christian bands. We just right. need to get somebody from Audio Adrenaline to join the band. And then maybe like Stephen Curtis Chapman to do some like cameo appearances. And we've got like the quintessential 90s band just encapsulated in a modern day band. I think if you could get a chorus or a verse in there from Micah W. Smith, you'd be all set. Yeah, yeah. We'd be it'd be pretty locked in there. Wow. Well this turned into like a walk down nineties memory lane. I know. With respect to Christian contemporary music. Yeah. That was it, so good. It was crazy. It was a really like surreal experience. It was fun. I mean, he he's a nice guy. It was funny to watch them because Part of the reason that I felt okay going up to talk to him was because he was kind of like bouncing around the terminal, like engaging random people. Like it wasn't like he was just sitting there. He was sort of like, like walking around talking to people and just like, like being an outgoing person. So I felt like, okay, even if this isn't Michael Tate, this isn't the kind of guy that's going to be like spraying me with pepper spray because I asked him if his name was Michael Tate. So I felt good about going up there, but it was fun to watch. Like it was just this group of guys, like, horsing around like they were shoving each other around while they were waiting in line and like kind of like ribbing each other so it was like just a bunch of guys on tour but it was really sort of humbling like good for them they just fly southwest like everybody else like <laughs> like they're like you can tell that it hasn't not that like ccm artists are making tons of money but they probably make more money than you or i do 
And right. but they they still like they're taking like regular commercial airlines flying coach because that's all like Southwest doesn't have anything but coach really. So right. it was it was an encouraging happenstance. Right on. I yeah. love that. What are you affirming? Well, this is great because I'm just going to continue in the theme of music. And that's where my affirmation falls this week. So normally I'm the one that I feel like is the self-appointed like curator of awesome music for our podcast and the representative of all things music. So you've yes. kind of just one up to me already, which is great. So here's my question, but, and this is going to play into my affirmation. And actually I, I'm a, I hesitate to ask this question now because you may answer yes, because of everything you just said. I had no <laughs> idea you were just randomly meeting contemporary Christian artists of some renown randomly, like at Subway. That's yeah. Ridiculous. What can I say? So here's my question. Have you ever had the opportunity to sing backup vocals on an album? Yes, I actually have. <laughs> Not like a popular one, but yes, I have. Okay. We got to stop then. What's the backdoor <laughs> story on that? Uh, my, what, what album? My choir director when I was in uh, like church choir when I was in high school, he had this like side band and he had our choir do like some choral music for the background of one of his songs. Man, you just like music juked me again. All right, so here's your second chance to sing backup vocals on an album, or for anybody <laughs> else that's listening that hasn't done it before, here's your first chance. I may have mentioned before, it's possible. I, I really enjoy this band named Dens, D-E-N-S. They're on Face Down Records, and they're what I would describe as like guitar-driven, post-rock. They have like amazing vocal hooks, hooks really introspective music. Their lyrics are fantastic. They're a Christian band. And they're doing this really interesting thing. They're tracking a brand new album. And so they put out this call and I will definitely make sure that we get this link into the notes for this particular episode. But what they're doing is they want people to sing a particular part of music that they have tracked out. They actually will give you a scratch track and the lyrics. And then what they're asking for you to do is just to sing along to it with any recording device that you have. So whether you have Pro Tools, GarageBand, or you just want to use like the voice memo function on your cell phone, that's totally fine. You send it to them and they're going to obviously master it, put it together as part of a choir, and they're going to use it on their brand new album, including they will give you vocal credits on the track. Interesting. So I just thought that was like a really fun way to kind of crowdsource using social media to get people to sing. And here's what's interesting about it is... I looked at it. I'm going to do it. You should definitely do it. Actually, you know what? Your wife should do it. She, she would love should. this. Yes, she would. Um, but here's the great thing about this is it's actually a fairly lengthy piece of music. It's several meters. So it's it's not like they're just asking you to sing a couple of lines. I would say it's like eight or ten lines. So it's fantastic and, and really catchy. I'm really anxious to see where this fits in the song. So we'll throw it out there so that people can find the link in our show notes and then go to it. Jesse, you know we don't actually do show notes, right? <laughs> sorry the show notes will be just this link we do that's all we and do a transcript now so that's cool yeah we could i mean i'd love to read back that whole story again about michael tate but so uh, yeah i just thought this is a fun thing and, and it's we got a musical theme going on here so I'm, I'm affirming this idea and i'm affirming everybody whether you can sing or not to just go out and do it have a little fun and try something totally different that might be out of your comfort zone and get on an album. If you've ever wanted to record and say, like, I was on that album. I sung backup vocals. Here's your chance. So check out nice. Dens. You can go to their Facebook page. You'll actually find this post. But we'll link to it in the show notes, which yes. will, again, be just this <laughs> link. You know, so, I, I think that you're randomly meeting a 
moderately famous uh, Christian recording artist story trumps mine, because when you met a moderately famous recording artist, you started a podcast with him. That's true. So that's true. What's happening well, with that I, podcast, anyways? <laughs> no, it's it's. <laughs> I knew this was coming. All right, so the Fast God Stuff podcast is still very much alive. We're actually working. We're in the heat of putting together an episode right now on nice. romance. Wow. See what I did there? Yeah. You know, Puns. if anything makes me think of romance, it's Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Conrad. Yeah. Me, me too. It got a little hot. We had to open the studio door. So oh, man. you can be looking for that. It's still very much alive. It's, it's coming. I thought you were going to say something about like, this is a great, I thought you were going to literally say, I'd like to take this moment to announce my new podcast with Michael Tate called, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, like CCM throwback. Yeah, or, there you go. Yeah. Something. I did so, think oh, I had my reformed brotherhood sweatshirt, my hooded sweatshirt, and I actually thought about giving it to him and asking him to check out the show. But it was like gross and sweaty from traveling and covered in cat hair from my mom's house. So I was like, this is not the way to promote our show. Oh, he already listens. I'm oh, sure. I'm sure. It. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. He yeah. actually walked yeah. up to me and was like, are you Tony Arsenal? <laughs> and I was like, let's get a selfie. <laughs> He's got a selfie on his phone now. And then he was like, you fly Southwest as well. I know. And, and I was like, like, no, no, I just hang out in the terminal for good stories. <laughs> I'm just waiting for my private jet to get fueled up. I'm looking for like the Delta Sky Lounge. I, I thought it was over here. So yeah. let's go into some denials. What yes. are you denying this week? You know, mine is a short denial. It's really straightforward. Uh, and I think probably is the same denial I had about this time last year or maybe about six months ago. I'm I'm denying daylight saving time. Like it's oh, just good. dumb and stupid and we should stop doing it. It's just pointless and worthless. So there's so no more elaboration. It's just dumb. Can I tell you a quick story? Yes. Very fast. Please do. This happened to me today, which was the time that we changed the clocks. So now I'm in this. I feel like we're as a society, as a technologically advanced society, we're getting to this weird limbo phase where we need to trust technology so much. And yet I still have these misgivings about being able to trust it. And here's like a dumb example. So I have this, my clock that sits on my nightstand, which also has my alarm to wake up. It's one of those clocks that like gets updated by like the atomic clock. You know, it has like a radio yeah. signal that it receives, but I never know if I can trust it. So what I did last night is I turned the clock back and kept my alarm at the same time. Well, overnight what happened is it decided it was going to adjust itself an hour anyway. <laughs> and so it woke me up an hour early. Nice. And so it, it went off. I hit the these button to stop it. My first thought was immediately, man, I am so tired, like more tired than I thought I'd be. And I went to bed at a fairly reasonable time. My second thought was, wow, I actually thought it would be a lot lighter outside since we set the clocks back. So I got up and was like doing stuff around the house before I realized I was up an hour early and I tried to go back to sleep. So I was like, <laughs> this thing has defeated me. Technology has yes. defeated me, even though I, I try my best to acquiesce to it. Yeah, it's just dumb. There's no reason to do it. <laughs> there never was a reason to do it. Honestly, I don't I don't actually know why we started doing it. You hear people talk about it being for the farmers. It's not for the farmers. The farmers don't use alarm clocks. They wake up with the roosters like it, right. And in the era when this started, nobody used alarm clocks because they didn't exist yet. Like it was 
way back like 150 years ago. So I, I don't really don't understand why we do it, but like it, it we lose a lot of money due to lost like time. That's crazy. We people like are more likely to have heart attack. Like this is the good yes. one where we get an extra hour of sleep. But like in the the opposite one in the spring, people have more heart attacks. Like there's more traffic accidents. Um, it, like energy wise, we actually get less hours of sunlight nationwide, like year round. If we didn't do, or then if we did just leave it the way it was. So I'm sure that God knew what he was doing when he created the pattern of sun rising and sun falling. We don't, we don't need to help him out with that. So how about this? So a lot of people have contended that if we're going to do the daylight savings time, we should at least push it up. So we shouldn't be into like November before we actually go back and set the clocks back an hour. And there's been a lot of conspiracy that it's the result of big chocolate. Big chocolate. Yeah. So I live in like Hershey. Oh, like for Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. That yes, makes sense. Exactly. No, that yep, makes sense. That, yep. That's, it's all part of like a mass conspiracy of lobbying for like, there are places that don't want to get rid of it and some that do. And there's all kinds of interest tied to when it actually happens. So big chocolate. It's no joke. Yeah. I just think we need to let God be God. And not <laughs> not try to mess with time. Let's turn this into a theological discussion. Let, let's so not. I was, I was just not anticipating so great a quip right there. I just think we need to let God be God. Can yes. we not just do that? Let's do that. How about we find out what you're denying tonight? Well, speaking of letting God be God, that was a great segue. I was I ended up watching something that my wife had on TV. And you're going to know this better than me, unfortunately. So she just watched that. The, the la- I think it's the last like Marvel movie. Is it Endgame? Or am I just making that up? Yeah, but it's not the last Marvel movie. Oh, never. There's probably a million of There's them. already been another one out since then. Oh, well, let's see. I can't even keep up. So was it Endgame? Is that what she was watching? Yes, Endgame. Okay. So what I was thinking was, one, I was like, I my first thought, honestly, when I came downstairs and saw it on, I was like, I thought. Thanos was already gone, but there he was again. So I was like, all right, so clearly. So, so just before you continue, spoiler alert, <laughs> just in case, just in case you haven't seen Did the I most significant movie in the last year uh, for like six months since it came out. Spoiler alert. Uh, well, oh, I'm not going to talk about the thing that happened. I won't talk about that. We well, already talked about the thing that ha- one of the things that happened. Oh, that was like a big surprise. Oh, it was like a huge surprise. Oh man, I'm so sorry, yeah. loved ones. I had no idea that I, I just saw it. And I, I okay, so then it was. I should have been surprised, and I was. But here's what I was thinking about more was he in particular has like all these powers, especially with like the gauntlet thing, where he's <laughs> he's like able to manipulate all of reality. There's like just an immense amount of power, and I was thinking about how we understand superheroes, and usually we associate some kind of unique gifting or power that they have. And it's like very narrow. And here's Thanos who apparently has like this broader range of powers, which includes like manipulating time and space and all kinds of other things. And I was just thinking, man, I just do not in my day to day life, like on Monday or Tuesday morning, think about the amazing power that God is and that he gives to us by way of Jesus Christ and the Holy spirit. So I'm, I'm denying against my own lack of making that my reality that 
I go to those kind of movies, I see them, and I think, wow, this is like exceptional. It's otherworldly. It's alien. It's unchartered. That kind of power is like amazing to conceive of. And yet, God is all of that and the bag of chips, like so yeah. much more. And that is for real. Yeah. And so, when I'm thinking about my own spiritual condition, his ability to save me, to transform me, to change me, that. I, I just really don't give it enough weight in my day-to-day life. And so I was just, that movie for some reason convicted me in that way. So I'm denying against not being cognizant of how powerful God is. Like here's the one who raises the dead, who redeems all things. And yeah. he's given his Holy Spirit to reside in me. And that should really influence and transform my behavior. It should at least transform the way I think and act. Yeah. And so I'm denying against a, a lack of awareness in that regard. Yeah, it's interesting because they actually like, like depowered the infinity gauntlet in the movies in, in the comics, like the, like Thanos literally became more or less omnipotent. Like he, he could literally reshape the entire universe like at will. Um, and, and what ends up getting him in the comics. Now this was like, the comics came out like, I don't know, like 25 years ago. So spoiler alert again, I guess. Spoiler alert. But like in the comics, what ended up undoing him was just pride. Like he got so sure that he couldn't be defeated that he like stopped paying attention and someone like basically like pickpocketed the gauntlet off of him. So like in, in the Marvel movies, like his influence and his ability to change things, like not only is it, uh, limited in time and space, but also like it comes at a, a personal cost to him. So even more so is your observation apt because Thanos like using the gauntlet hurts him. Like if there's a personal cost, he he's physically damaged. There's an emotional toll. Like God is not diminished in any sense. Right. Like when right. he, when he uses his power, he doesn't expend his power. He doesn't yes. even extend his power. He just exercises his power. Exactly. We're actually going to talk about that tonight, I think. Yeah, that's great. So before we get into a little bit of Micah, I feel like there's one last thing that bridges both theology and music that we should probably just address. I'm surprised we got this far without any uh, either of us bringing it up, but just really quickly. We didn't talk about Kanye West at all. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently, if you talk about Kanye West in the wrong way, you could like get kicked off Twitter. Really? Yeah, apparently there's an apologist who said and i i'm not sure that this was particularly the wisest thing but justin peters who's a kind of a discernment ministry apologetics type guy yes sort of said like i've been holding i've been holding back on talking about kanye blah blah blah. he said something and the word on the street i don't know if it's true or not so take it with a grain of salt but this is the word on the street is that he got so many like hate-filled letters and like harassment that he had to shut down his twitter wow yeah that's incredible well, I just think, I've li- have you listened to the album at all? No, I don't care about rap. <laughs> the last the last rap song I listened to was Jesus Freak by DC Talk. <laughs> and we've come full circle. It's this funny because fantastic. I actually, it, I, you know, I'm in the Reformed pub, and I actually posted a picture of me and Michael Tate, and the caption was, the whole Reformed world is going crazy about Kanye West. And then I was like, and I'm sitting here in the airport going, is that Michael Tate? <laughs> so so kanye west like i'm i'm incredibly optimistic and actually from an observation standpoint i think we have every reason to be 
even more than like cautiously optimistic. I think we sure. can actually I think we can actually look at the fruit that he's bearing, the way that he's speaking boldly for um, the gospel. And I mean, even even like certain moral things that are pretty dramatic reversals, I think, for him. Right. Um, I think that this is fruit bearing in keeping with repentance. That said, like the parable of the sower um, or I suppose the parable of the seed might be more appropriate to call it if you ignore the editorial headings. Um, the parable of the seeds is applicable here, right? So there's there's Still play. right. There's the seed that was cast onto the thorny ground or onto the hard ground that springs up quickly and doesn't be, doesn't put down roots. And so it seems to blossom quickly. Uh, but then in the midst of persecution or the troubles of this world, it it falls away. Right? right. And then there's the the seed that was sown among the thorny ground and the thorns are things like wealth and fame and pride that choke out the growth that the seed may have had. So in reality, we should be praying that Kanye is neither the seed on the rocky ground or the seed on the thorny ground, because he is in one of those unique positions where both of those threats are hyper real in a way that I don't think you and I or most right. average Christians can even comprehend that he has so much um, temptation to rely on his wealth and his prestige. And he has so much um, likelihood, you know, he's starting to speak out about things like abortion um, which is a hot topic, but the second he speaks out against the LGBTQ plus I whatever lobby, they're going to come down hard and fast on top of him in a way that none of us have ever seen before. And um, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit sustains him because there is a very good likelihood that he will lose everything. Uh, every worldly blessing and benefit that he's received, probably including his wife and and likely his children, he could lose that and likely will um, because that's the reality of the world we live in. So that that kind of persecution is something that most American Christians can't even comprehend. Um, so we should be praying for him. We should be praying for his pastor. I mean, there are there are certainly reasons for concern. Like he seems to be sort of starting this pseudo church thing that he does. And it's really concerning to see a neophyte sort of thrust into the the spotlight, thrust into sort of this informal leadership that he seems to have taken on. You know, we have a very brand new baby Christian who's being asked to give interviews about Christian faith that millions of people will watch and listen to, which is a little bit uh, concerning. So my instinct and my impulse, and I have been praying this way, is to pray that God preserves him and protects him and takes him out of the spotlight in a way that protects him even more because the spotlight is not, not really a healthy place for a brand new baby Christian to be. So God seems to be using him though. I mean, there's already accounts that I'm hearing from pastors across the country where people are coming to their congregation and saying, you know, I would never have thought to go to church, but I just listened to Kanye's album and I felt like mm -hmm. I had to investigate it more. So it seems like the gospel is already going forth through his, uh, through his record and through his music. Um, so we should continue to pray that it does, but um, I think we have good reason to be optimistic and, and joyful over this though. Here's all I'll say about it is everyone should just at least give the album a listen. In fact, the other night, my wife and I were sitting in the living room and we just pulled it up on Amazon Music and Amazon Music will give you the lyrics in real time. And there's no doubt, just like you said, there's a dramatic reversal in the things that he's talking about. So at the end of the day, no matter where Kanye is and what God is doing in his life, 
the album itself is intensely God glorifying. Yeah. And that alone yeah. is a beautiful thing. So it's worth listening to and certainly worth worth praying for him. Yeah. So let's get into Micah, which we're still in Micah cast. We've spent all this wonderful time talking about music, which was great. But before we get into the passage for tonight, the little prick we set aside, can I just give a quick update on chapter three, like where we've been? Because we're, we're coming to the end of it. So to give people context, this would be like the scriptural backdoor story, if you will. I'm previously, now. previously on MicahCast. <laughs> previously on MicahCast. So we're in chapter three, and there are three prophecies in this chapter that announce the rejection and the punishment of Israel's corrupt leadership. The first is in verses one through four we've talked about. And it's the leader's treatment of the oppressed people. It's likened to cannibalism. The second one is the false prophets who led the people astray and are condemned and contrasted with Micah, who delivers this true message from God. He's on point. That's verses five and seven and then chap- and verse eight. And then last, what we're getting into now is the corrupt political and religious leaders are condemned and their complacency is castigated. So this rounds out in verses nine through 12 the rest of chapter three. Would you be willing to read those beautiful verses? Sure thing. Starting in uh, chapter three, verse nine. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Dramatic pause. Dramatic pause. So, you know, this this section here... Um, you know, as you said, the first kind of condemnation oracle is targeted specifically at the the political and judicial rulers and leaders of Israel. The second is sort of targeted specifically at the religious, the, specifically the false prophets, but kind of the religious leadership of Israel. And so this is kind of a summary judgment and a final proclamation, right? The first, the first um, phrase of this, hear you hear this is kind of like when the judge comes into the courtyard or into the courtroom and delivers the verdict. Right. Right. So Micah is coming in. Um, This is set up and established as kind of a courtroom trial scene. The charges have been read. The evidence has been brought forth. And now Micah comes forth on behalf of the judge who is delivering his verdict. And so right. he he reiterates, just like in a trial, right? When they come in, the judge says, John Smith, uh, you have been charged with the crime of murder in the first degree. Uh, and then he says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what say you? And then they deliver the verdict. And this is what's going on, is Micah is now on behalf of the judge of the universe, delivering the covenant verdict. And the verdict is unequivocally guilty. Right. And and so now we're into we move in in the back half of these verses. We move into the sentencing phase of this condemnation oracle. And it's not pretty at all. Right. And what really has come out to me through these verses that it's a personal concern to myself is the way in which, as you said, God is able to review this evidence where he's able to weigh out the arguments 
for and against the verdict that's being announced here. Because it seems to me that what Micah really is emphasizing in most of these verses is that the sin of man does not work the righteousness of God. So even when men do that thing, which in itself is good, but do it for unrighteous reasons, it becomes an abomination both to God and to man. So here we have this example of where faith rests in the Lord as the soul's foundation, but presumption only leans upon the Lord like as if it were a prop, which is what he's saying there. And it uses God to meet some kind of ulterior motive or leverages him for some kind of selfish purpose. And this is where I feel like that sense of personal conviction that once again, it's not just about what you do, but the attitude, the heart attitude in which you do it. Once again, here's intent always preceding content. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a couple interesting features of the text that we should comment on. Right. So in verse 11, um, the, the English uh, the English translators have followed standard English uh, grammatical uh, conventions. Right. So subject um, subject verb predicate. Right. Subject verb right. comment. And so it's heads is the subject, give judgment is the verb, and then for a bribe is the prepositional phrase that explains it. But in Hebrew, it actually places that prepositional phrase before the verb, which is a, an emphatic uh, an emphatic uh, structure. So, so it would better read it something along the lines of, it's leaders, for a bribe they give judgment. It's priests, right. for a price they teach. It's prophets, for money they practice divination. And so there's this threefold repetition showing that it's actually the greed of these leaders because in all three of those in that, in that triplet there, all three of them are related to the proper role of the figure in question or the group in question. So it's right. It's right and good for the leaders to give judgment. It's right and good for the priests to teach and it's right and good for the prophets. There's some disagreement, whether this is practice divination in sort of a general sense that they are, are practicing divination and that they're getting divine messages. That's the position Calvin takes that this is, this is actually a legitimate function of a prophet is to practice divination, right? Um, you think of like Joseph who says, I'm able to practice divination when he's meeting his brothers. Um, you know, he's not lying to them. He does practice divination in a certain sense. And so, so Calvin wants to say this practicing divination is a legitimate function. There are others that would say this is almost mocking the prophets because it's comparing them to pagan practices of divination. I actually would take Calvin's view because it, it maintains that parallelism. But either way, these functions that the the leaders, the priests, and the prophets are doing, um, they should be done out of uh, a sense of justice and a sense of desire to follow God, a sense of um, a des- an understanding of their proper role in society and in right. God's economy. But instead, now it's done for money. So the leaders take a bribe and deliver the judgment they've been told to give. So they, for- they actually forfeit the authority of their office because they're no longer in charge. It's actually the rich who are in charge now. The priests no longer teach sound doctrine. They teach doctrine that their wealthy patrons are, are telling them to teach. The prophets no longer deliver God's message, but they deliver a message that will tickle the people and keep their stomachs full. So it's important to see, you know, even though we, we um, have talked about different aspects of what these uh, different groups are doing, it's important to see that ultimately the sin that has occurred 
is an abandonment of their proper exercise of their office in favor right. of um, financial remuneration or financial compensation that just is ungodly to the core. And the irony here is that they don't even realize that there's been a perversion of function. Right. Because when they say, will God really harm us? What they're trying to do is leverage the fact that we're doing these good things, but we're doing them in an unrighteous way. But still, they're good things, and we're God's people. So right. therefore, by some kind of weird extension of that logic, we should be totally fine. So this idea that he brings in of Zion being built up with blood, which again is just this really grotesque image. Even in that verse, you have this idea. Of it, it, Micah moves from using different pronouns, like he has they. And that's a change from the personal pronoun of you in right. that verse that precedes it in, in chapter or chapter in verse nine. So the third person there puts even like these people to like a greater distance as estranged from God. It's literally whosoever builds. It's singular. Yeah. So th this is kind of this really direct um, way of addressing these leaders. And when I was looking at this in respect to like what the other prophets are saying, both respect to Jerusalem at the time, and also how often God has had to bring this type of message against his people. And so I looked at Ezekiel 22, 7, which reads this way, its officials, that's Jerusalem, within it are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. How crazy is that? Like we're yeah. talking about a complete destruction of people, in other words, to get dishonest gain. And I think what we have to understand is the destruction that's happening here, the sickness, the disease that we've been talking about all throughout this series of Micah cast is in fact this destruction that's happening. It's not just bodily destruction. It's also a spiritual decay, which they are promoting and promulgating by way of this type of behavior. It's dangerous in every possible way on every possible level to the greatest magnitude. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, um, it's important to note, you have to read all of the prophets kind of in concert with each other, right? Yes. Because we, we remarked True. a little bit in our very introductory one here, and we haven't come back to it, and, and we may not, but Micah and Isaiah very much function as partners in terms of the way that their content is unfolded. But just because Micah and Isaiah are very closely linked doesn't mean that passages out of Jer uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other prophets don't inform here for us what's going on. So for example... Uh, at the end of verse 11 here, it says they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. This is exactly the same situation that Jeremiah is commenting on in the right. early part of his book, where he talks about how the people go in and they say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And they're using it almost like home base in a game of tag where they go yes. into the temple and they go, well, we've got the temple. God's name dwells here. Surely he's not going to, he's not going to allow tragedy to befall us because he would be allowing that to befall on his own, the place where his own name dwells. It's not, it's actually kind of like this weird perverted version of the intercessory prayer that Moses prays where it in the is. desert, he says, Lord, you, you, you are not a God who's capricious. And why should your name be defamed? Because these people have sinned. Why should the people look at them and say, he led them into the desert to destroy them? Well, they're, they're kind of doing the same thing. They're going like, well, the Lord won't destroy us because that wouldn't look good for him. And what God says, and I read this in my, my devotions. I don't remember exactly where it was, but where God, what God says is basically, I'm going to take that shame because the right thing to do is to punish you. And, right. and, and there's a certain element. I mean, that, 
that idea right there foreshadows the cross in really significant ways. And if this yes. was Jeremiah cast, then maybe we would dig into that more. But it's <laughs> it's important to look at the other prophets and understand. And, and we'll uh, we're going to talk about this because I had this like brain melting moment this morning when I was doing my devotions and then when I was reading and preparing for this. There is such utter harmony and unity across the prophets, and that utter harmony and unity across the prophets is completely 100% harmonious with the pictures and understanding of judgment that the rest of the scripture gives from the very beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, that anyone who would look at this and read it and understand what's actually being said and say that this is not a divine book is out of their mind entirely. Right. Yes, just statistically speaking, it's the, the impossibilities yeah. are. To it's an it's to a degree that's impossible that you'd have this much coordination. Yeah. among this many different authors. So let's get into that because I, I want to hear more about that and the observation you have. And let me kind of throw out, like you just said, some of where we see this common thread throughout all the prophets. And as you were saying that, what really struck me was this sense of the difference between Moses and the people, once again, in terms of like leveraging this promise. In a sense, they're leveraging God's promises against him. Right. And the thing is, when Moses does that, he's doing that with righteous intent. Right. And and so then God is going to honor that, of course. And here we see the exact opposite thing. So by way of confirmation, here's what Isaiah writes in the first chapter of his book. This is verses 21 through 23, just so we can see the continuity of what you're talking about. He writes, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Yeah. So what a wonderful, like mixed of all these kind of metaphors, like your wine is mixed down. Who wants that nonsense? Like nobody wants to drink that stuff. The righteousness that was once a part of who you are. Now you're just murderers. You're killers. That's all you care about. The silver that was pure and beautiful, practical, useful, a glorious treasure. Now it's just become like all of the waste that's in the silver that when you want to purify out, you become the exact opposite thing that I required. And so in that situation, you can see how God would say, I'm going to bring punishment because that is what is actually just in this situation. There are no rules in the sense that because you are my people, I will fail to punish you. In fact, I think it's the other way around. The requirement is be holy as God is holy. So here you have this continuity where, you know, all throughout the Old Testament and even in our own contemporary era, people will say like, well, God won't punish me. He's not going to get after me for that. Like I'm still doing the things that he would like me to do. And it's just God is always saying, look at Shiloh. See what I did there. Yeah. I, I will do it again. I will do it again. And in, in many ways, like you said, he's done it on the cross in an exemplary way, but in a way that transforms all of history. But but I'm really curious to get to what like what was like the mind melting intertextual thing that you came across yeah. with respect to this passage. So this is gonna take a little bit of setup. All right, give me the backstory. So I'm gonna read a bunch of verses and then I'm gonna show you how this ties together. Right. So the first verse is Genesis one, uh, verse two, it says the earth was full without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then I'm going to go to Genesis seven. Let my logos catch up here. 
Uh, Genesis 7. Nope, not 7. Must be 8. We need like Bible turning page music. Yeah. Uh, verse, let's start at verse 6 of chapter 8 of Genesis. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened up the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot and she returned to him. And the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. Okay, so so in Genesis 1, the the earth, uh, the, the heavens and the earth are created by God in Genesis 1, 1. And in verse 2, what, what we see is this unformed sort of mass of chaos, right? It's this unformed, empty, empty void that is said to be kind of this watery depth and the spirit of God is hovering over it. Genesis 7 or sorry, Genesis 8. After the judgment, there's there's this imagery again that there's the, the water over the whole face of the earth. And now we have a dove, which we know becomes a spirit, a, a symbol of the Holy Spirit later in scripture, who's now right. f- flying to and fro over the earth to sort of assess the situation. And this is where in my morning devotions, this kind of rocked my world. So we're going to jump all the way forward to Jeremiah chapter four, and we're going to start in verse 23. And it says, I looked on the earth. So Jeremiah, just a little setup. Jeremiah is now reflecting on a vision that God gave him of the future coming judgment of particularly Jerusalem. And he says, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void and to the heavens and they had no light. I looked to the mountains and behold, they were quaking and all the hills moved to and fro. Uh, And then verse... 26. I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a desert and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. And so in Genesis one, we have uh, God creates the heaven and the earth. Genesis two, it's without form and void. The only other place that that combination of words, which if you're interested in the Hebrew is tohu vavohu, which is just a beautiful poetic way to say things. Uh, the only other place that that combination of words is used is in Jeremiah 23 here. And so the state, the, the form of the earth or the, the unformed chaos of creation prior to God's organizing and sort of purifying work, purifying not in the sense of um, removing corruption, but purifying in the sense of, of making functional or bringing form. That's the state of the earth prior to God's creative act. And now here it is used again to describe his act after judgment. And what we see right. here, this, this was the thing that just melted my whole brain, is the act of judgment that God engages in in the flood is an act of decreation. Right. So he takes this formed world that was the the dry land was separated and he opens up the windows of heaven, the, the, the windows in the firmament. Right. When he formed the, the waters and he made it habitable, he placed this firmament between the waters above and the waters below that that brought order to this chaotic world. He undoes that in the flood by removing or taking the windows and opening them in the firmament. And so what we see is that judgment fundamentally in the view of the prophets here in Jeremiah, judgment fundamentally is God withholding his organizing and restraining presence from 
from from the world and allowing chaos to take over again. Right. right. So now let's go to uh, Micah three twelve, which is from our passage. Uh, let me get there. Page turning Bible music. I know. Insert seriously. Here. And this is where he says he says therefore. Because of you, right, leaders of Jerusalem, right? And so we have this double logical explanation. Therefore, right, because of everything we said in verses 9 through 11, therefore, because of you, leaders of Jerusalem, I, the Lord, will make Zion a plowed as a field, right? The same imagery we saw in uh, Jeremiah, that Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountains, a house of a wooded height, right? So, so God is taking what was this civilized ordered structure, this place that had been cultivated and refined and made into a civilization. He is decreating it in judgment. And so, so he does that by withdrawing his restraining presence and allowing evil to take over. And what do we see when we, when we talk about the apostle Paul, Romans one, right? He gives people over to their own judgment. So, so we have that lined up. We go all the way to the book of revelation. Well, what happens in the final eschatological ordering of things? We see the new Jerusalem, which is a perfectly proportioned cube float down out of heaven and take permanent residence on the earth. Never again to have chaos restored to the earth. So from very start of the scriptures, all the way through the prophets, all the way to Paul, all the way to Revelation, we have this consistent understanding of what judgment is. That God, when the people violate his covenant, what he does is he withdraws his his protection. He withdraws his ordering. In a sense, he starts to uh, no longer uphold the, the orderliness of the being of what he's extended, right? In him and we live and move and have our being. Well, when God withdraws that ordering presence, things begin to descend into chaos. And that's what judgment is. This is the consistent picture of judgment throughout the scriptures. And the, the prophets across the board paint this picture that what God does, it's not as though he's passive in it. It's not as though he simply lets what was going to happen happen. But what he actively does is withholds his grace, withholds his kindness withholds his protection and allows the chaotic forces of evil to do what chaotic forces of evil do. And that brings judgment upon his people. And and it, it was just amazing to me to see, you know, Micah was brought into the presence of God and given this Oracle Jeremiah, when he saw that the earth was formless and void, he was being given a glimpse of God's revelation in a way that you and I probably until we pass into glory, will never understand what it's like to have that kind of direct unmitigated access to God. It's just this consistent picture throughout scripture. And Micah here is no different. Yeah. That, I, that's a beautiful observation to me. What I see here is something that I can only describe by borrowing terms that I know from economics that describe capitalism, which is, I think what we're seeing is God's creative destruction. Yeah. That there is a passivity to what God is doing, but it's active, if that makes sense. Right. No, it does. In that he he is applying a curse. He is applying a judgment. And the application of that judgment is in the allowance of an extreme amount of evil to basically have its way with his people, at least in this particular sense. Yeah. And that's exactly what we see. What's interesting is the imagery that Micah draws out 
shows in some ways how dramatic it is, how weighty God's judgment is, and, and how pervasive and how long-lived it is. So, of course, this is all fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Right. But think about what it would be like if you have a facade, a building, just you know, in terms of the, the physicality. In order for it to be overgrown with shrubbery, it not only has to be destroyed, but completely uprooted. I mean, the ground almost has to be completely turned over. Right. And so here we're talking about, it's not just like, you know, you're all going to have to leave. You're all going to have to get out. They'll set it on fire. But we're talking about like a, a complete wiping out. And in many ways, that's what God's talking about with his entire people here. There's going to be a remnant that is preserved. But Jerusalem, as they know it, because of all the things that will happen, will be so undone that it will be unrecognizable by any kind of historical standard. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens. So if sacred places are polluted by sin, I mean, this is always God's most operandi. If sacred places are polluted by sin, and that includes you and I, they will be wasted and ruined by the judgments of God. Yeah. And so you're right that there's a consistent message from the beginning of the scriptures all the way throughout to the end that that is what exactly is going to happen. Like, in other words, the protection of God's people is for God's people, but we define that in a strictly Romans kind of way, where that is those whom God has regenerated and called to himself for God's people, not those merely who try to appropriate God or some kind of works of God for their own purposes. They will find themselves utterly unprotected and judged. Yeah, and you know what I think is really beautiful, and and this is where I think we see the gospel in these judgment oracles, right? So going back to Jeremiah a little bit more is Jeremiah looks and he sees this unformed chaotic world and he looks up and he sees darkness in the sky. Well, what happens on, and and he says the mountains begin to shake. Well, what happens on the day of uh, the crucifixion, right? Right. That the mountains begin to shake that right. darkness that Jeremiah sees is no longer hovering over the people, but now it is hovering over the broken, uh, broken, crucified, naked, shamed man on a cross who has been destroyed for the sins of his people. And so that darkness yeah. no longer is a judgment, but now is a sign of the severity of God's wrath, which has been taken by Christ. And so now, now we look forward to the day when we no longer need a sun, when, when the fact that there are no sky, no stars in the sky will no longer be a terrifying thing to us, but we'll be okay because the, the Lord is our light, right? So, so we no longer look to the day where the temple has been destroyed and, and as the Jewish people had to wonder and re, kind of reinvent Judaism because they couldn't have access to God's presence without a temple. Now we look at the book of Revelation and we see that there is no temple. Because the Lord is the temple. Because we have direct right. access to the Lord. We no longer need this cultic uh, um, apparatus of the temple and the sacrificial system. Because Christ is now the temple. right? He has tabernacled among us. And then we will one day dwell with him in glory. So so we see, all, in, a, in a real sense, we see all of the judgment that happens in the prophets. All of the judgment that is meted out against Israel is flipped around and the, the curses of the covenant of works become the blessings of the covenant of grace in a certain sense, right. because everything that we would lose if we don't obey the covenant of works, which we don't, all of that, we gain the, the opposite blessings in the new Jerusalem because of God's gracious covenant with Christ first and foremost, and then with those who are united to him by faith. 
we can't underemphasize or underweight the kind of judgment that happens in the New Testament on the cross, because there's a tendency to, to really focus on the fact that the scriptures say explicitly that you know, Jesus gives up his life, that here we have a manifestation of God's love for us, and that while we were sinners, he sent his son to die for us. All of that is, of course, absolutely true. But this weird juxtaposition, this false dichotomy of the Old Testament where we find, well, here's a God of judgment, and in the New Testament, here's a God of extreme love. There was an intense amount of judgment that happened on the cross that really was the culmination or the heaping up. Even all this stuff in the Old Testament, almost that, all of what we're talking about, is itself kind of like a shadow of the judgment right. that is to come, the final judgment, the one that sets everything straight. Because at the end of the day, even with the judgment here, there was still such a barrier. There was still the sin that separated, that things were left undone. People were still bound up in chains. And so really that doesn't change until Christ comes and he dies on the cross. And so what's odd to me is for those who would argue, well, here we have again the Old Testament where God is all judgment. Yeah, the book of Jonah, where Jonah is just like a whiner. He's like, God, I knew you were going to be super gracious and yeah. kind. That's why I didn't <laughs> want to go to Nineveh. And then you get to the New Testament and you have Jesus crying out in the garden. And he's not crying out because he fears some kind of physical death. I think to the contrary, how many have come after him who have gladly gone to their deaths to be persecuted and killed yeah. for Christ? Instead, what we have here is he is aware of the separation that's about to take place, something that he's never experienced before, and that is going to be the blessing that comes by way where the curse is broken. I mean, that's just like gospel good news. Like, you can never graduate from that, to your point. I mean, how awesome that the more we study the scriptures, the more we marinate and pickle ourselves into them, that we find that not only is the message consistent, but it just keeps drawing us back to the gospel is good news all the time, and all the time, in every way, the gospel is really good news. Yeah, and, and you know, this is why we should study the prophets, because in a, in a very significant way, um, the judgment that falls down upon the people of Israel for their sin is a a, a tiny, minuscule version of the eternal judgment that all of us exactly. deserve. And so, yes, we should look at the law to see how fall how how far short we have fallen of God's perfect holy standard. And yes, we can look at the uh foretold curses uh in the Deuteronomistic code, right? We can look at the the sections in Deuteronomy 24 and following that show what is to come. But it's not really until we get to the prophets that we see the depth of the judgment that God is going to pour out on Jerusalem. And here's the right kicker. On. That is a tiny foretaste of the eternal judgment of the wicked. And so so we really want to get to the law. You want to you want to crush someone with the law, bring them to the prophets. And the beauty of the prophets is that it's not just crushing them with the law, but it's never very far in the prophets until you get to the hope of the gospel, right? So we're going to come in next week, just a little sneak peek, spoiler alert, I guess. We're going to get to the the coming of the gracious Lord who saves his people in the next verse here. But in a very real sense, Micah is doing this law gospel approach to evangelism where he's saying, look, all, all of you people are wicked and terrible and you've all sinned and this is what's coming to you. But... But God, who is rich in mercy, 
right? We could, we could probably Amen. take something right out of Ephesians and just swap it right in here. But God, who is rich right. in mercy because of his great love for you, which he has in Christ, we have to remember that any grace that is shown in the Old Testament is grace that is shown because of Christ. So it's not just that God decided to be gracious. He did decide to be gracious, but he decided to be gracious to people in Christ. We can't lose sight of that in the prophets just because that phrase isn't there. We do see glimpses of it here and there that there's a coming mediator, that there's a coming righteous one. But we have to remember that the grace that it, when we get to verse four, one next week, and it says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. The grace that is shown to those in the latter days, whether it's eschatological latter days, or whether it's the latter days of the exile when they return to the land, all of that grace is purchased by Christ on the cross, even if it's purchased in advance. Amen. See, that? that's a wonderful thing. I mean, honestly, it makes me laugh because it's, it's so otherworldly. It's yeah. so alien that it's almost too good to be true. And the only way it could be true is if it comes from God himself, which yep. of course it does. So yeah. like we should wrap this up, I think kind of by saying like, if we take this full circle, let me just draw us back to where we kind of started in some ways. How do I know that it's possible that somebody like Kanye West could be a Christian? The reason I know is because I am the worst sinner that I know. Yeah. And God saved me. Mm-hmm. So th- the fact that we are made a new creation in Jesus Christ, even though we deserve the wrath that we're talking about here. And I like what you said. I'm going to summarize that as saying it's kind of like an appetizer wrath. Yeah. Really, that's a judgment that we deserve, but it's just an amuse-bouche, if you will, of like the <laughs> actual weight of what should be put on upon us. And so I think of you know that verse in Titus, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, which is you know we're trying to be done here, but according to his own mercy, yeah. by the washing of regeneration, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Man, I hope people like are as stoked as I am right now to yeah. just hear that again and think about it anew. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I'm excited to get to the next passage. So let's just go. No, we, we should probably stop. And uh, <laughs> we'll close this out just by saying, like, pray pray for the people in your lives who are Christians. Pray for Kanye. Um, pray for his wife. I mean... It's not the case that any one sinner is more valuable to God than any other, but it is the case that sometimes one sinner who's redeemed has more impact than another sinner who's redeemed. And someone, someone like Kanye West uh, and, and Kim Kardashian to, to have both of them come to true, genuine saving faith in Christ and to become passionate about sharing the gospel they have a, an influence and a platform and the an ability to reach uh, a whole sector of society that, quite frankly, is like an unreached people group at this point. I, I actually don't even know right. who it was that shared the gospel with Kanye. And there's something actually really beautiful about that, that like whoever it was that shared the gospel with him, that 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 was the human means by which God brought this about is anonymous for the most part, or maybe I just haven't run into it. That's actually a really beautiful picture of the gospel because that that's what it is. Like we share the gospel, not to make our own name great, but to save sinners and to make God's name great. And, and regardless of whether this is a genuine conversion or whether it turns out to be spurious, God's name has been made great through this. Like there, there's no denying that his name has been lifted up and elevated. You know, there was, um, that I forget his name, but that British guy who did the, um, 
the uh, airplane karaoke thing with him. Did you see that interview? Yes. Like yeah. that guy was exposed to the gospel and then then all of his audience was exposed to the gospel. And right. like you could see that he was genuinely, like, genuinely joyful hearing and singing these gospel songs on this plane. Like he couldn't hide the fact that he was experiencing joy by being in the presence of all these people singing God's praises. And you could see that he thought the whole thing was a little bit weird. And maybe I'm reading into this, but you could also see that he was really like genuinely curious what was going on. So I agree. pray for Kanye, pray for his protection, pray for the gospel to go forth. We know that it will, but pray that it'll go forth powerly through Kanye and pray that he will not become a false convert. One of the things we can at least say for certain about this podcast is it's really been the definitive reform <laughs> podcast about Michael Tate. Yes. And Kanye West. <laughs> I actually haven't heard a podcast about Kanye West. Oh, really? I mean, well, he's like everywhere right now. But yeah. I, I really think if somebody knows Michael Tate, well, sorry, you do know Michael Tate. So maybe you could just get him to come on and talk to us. I think we, we should talk try. About DC talk. I think we should try to get Kanye on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, let's just do that. Then. I feel so like somebody this is going to happen. Kanye. Let me let me work on that. We'll have my people call his people. I don't <laughs> have your it. people. I'm my people. I'm going to have to call him. Does anyone have Kanye's cell phone number? Somebody's got. We're calling on the Brotherhood. We need Kanye. Somebody's got to have a connection. Somebody, somebody has, has to get to a connection. Him. I will. Somebody give, met him at a subway. Yeah, I will give 100% credit to someone who gets Kanye West on this podcast. You'll get oh, a free sure. beer stein for that. For sh- absolutely. <laughs> for sure. Well, Jesse, I'm going to preempt you because I could tell you were going for it. Until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>